Well, I hope that you're beginning to feel somewhat at home in this letter. We've been in Ephesians now for about a year, starting in chapter 1, working all the way up until this present point, chapter 5, with only two chapters left. I hope that you're beginning to feel at home with the emphases of the letter, the flow of Paul's argument, the specifics that he gives in this letter, and that as we keep coming back to it and reminding ourselves of what Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, God is making clear to you how the Word should impress itself upon your life. I said at the very beginning of this series, we must not underestimate just how rich is the theology in these six chapters of God's Word. Ephesians is often overlooked in terms of its importance, I think because it is shorter than, for example, Paul's letter to the Romans. We tend to think of Romans as the, the Mount Everest of Christian theology. Paul's letter that he wrote that teaches us so much about the gospel, and we perhaps miss just how rich Ephesians is. It is shorter, but it is dense, packed with theological truth that is intended to shape the way we live. And you'll remember, it's written out of a context wherein the church was healthy. This is not a reactionary letter written to a church that was facing problems, at least not internally. It's a healthy situation, and seemingly, Paul is here condensing and summarizing the truths that he had taught them in person as he was able to be with them for two, maybe even three years that we read of back in Acts chapter 19 and prior to that. Paul taught the Christians in Ephesus for many hours every day. You can only imagine what those lessons were like. An extended equipping hour every day. And he just built them up in their knowledge of the gospel, in their knowledge of the church, and in their knowledge of God himself. And then the Holy Spirit moved Paul on, and there was many tears as he left, but he was able sometime after to write to them by way of reminder, stating, it would seem again, what it was that he gave to them when he was with them in person. Chapter 1, which so many of you memorized around about this time last year, one of the richest eulogies we have in all of Scripture, teaches us just how rich we are in Christ. The appropriate response is that we would bless God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And then verse after verse after verse, 
one long sentence in the original, verse after verse after verse, Paul unpacks what is the Christian's blessing in Christ. If you want to know how rich you are, go to Ephesians 1. He then leads us in prayer. We respond to this eulogy by praying that we would know it more. Think back to that original prayer in chapter 1. Paul says, in light of all of this, what is my prayer for you? That you would know how rich you are. Then in chapters 2 and 3, he keeps going back to the idea of unity. The immediate outworking of our wealth in Christ is that we should strive to be at peace with one another. Remember the context in which he's writing that is one wherein the church is made up of Jew and Gentile. Different from our context, these new believers in Christ were coming together and figuring out how to do life with one another for the very first time. And so Paul keeps telling them how important unity is. And our unity in Christ is only an outworking of our gratitude for how richly Christ has blessed us. Then we get to chapter 4, and Paul starts to unpack more of the practical implications of our salvation. And that's what we were looking at just prior to Christmas, sections in chapter 4 that speak about the reality of our being gifted. We've all received gifts with which we are to serve one another and build the body of the church. The word goes out, it activates the saints to use their gifts and to build the church. And then towards the end of chapter 4, Paul reminds us of the importance of our thoughts. Don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Think like a Christian. Think like a Christian, which then leads to acting and speaking and doing like a Christian. These are foundational, basic realities of the Christian life. Chapter 5, Paul is about to, be, to get even more specific. Some of the most well-known portions of Ephesians are found here in chapters 5 and 6. Not least at the end of this chapter, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And of course, the letter ends with the, ex the encouragement to stand, to be strong in the Lord, and to put on the whole armor of God. Before Paul dives into those specifics, he gives us these two introductory verses. They sit, as it were, like a, a banner over all that he's about to say. They function as a bridge moving us from the previous section into chapter 5, and Paul says very simply two realities. One, we are to be imitators of God. And two, we are to love like 
Christ. Sounds very much like Christian talk. This is the kind of thing that we say. We're to imitate God and love like Christ and encourage you not to allow yourself to think of these verses in a generic or abstract manner. They're very specific in the theology they give us, and they're intended to inform the way in which we go about our daily lives. These two imperatives, these two commands, be imitators of God and love, walk in love like Christ, are to infuse themselves into your everyday practices. Mundane tasks should be done as imitators of God. Seemingly mundane responsibilities should be carried out in such a way that we are striving to love as Christ loved us. Now, I don't imagine that anything I will say this evening will be new to you. If you've been around the church for some time, if you're familiar with the letter to the Ephesians and the other epistles that we have in our Bible, I don't know that there'll be anything new this evening, but that's okay. The Scriptures are given to us to remind us of how we should live. And so I pray that tonight would be a reminder, an encouragement, and a challenge for us to imitate God and to love like Christ. There are two points. Those are the two verses beginning then with our responsibility to imitate God. Paul says, therefore, of course, we have to stop and ask, what is he connecting this present thought with? And the answer is the previous section. Therefore, forms that bridge from chapter 4, where Paul spoke about the importance of us thinking rightly. And as you'll remember, the importance that we have to speak truthfully, to be people of the truth, to work truthfully. He's leading from those responsibilities into this command to be an imitator of God. Specifically, I think Paul is putting his hand upon verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. The point is, he's telling us again that we should be those that forgive one another. How is it that you can be someone who consistently forgives others even when you have been wronged over and over again, when you've been hurt? How can you keep on forgiving? You look to God and you strive to imitate Him. Now that idea of imitation would have been very familiar to Paul's original readers. In the ancient world, the notion of imitation was central to the idea of learning. How do you learn? It is predominantly through imitation. It's not so prevalent in the way we think about learning today, and yet, I would argue, somewhat intuitively, we know it to be true. Think about a young child. Most of what the young child knows to do 
has not been taught to him in a didactic manner. He's learned most of what he knows to do simply by observing the world around him. And specifically by observing his parents. He looks to those who are above him. He looks to those who are in authority over him. He looks to those who are his role models. And he copies. It's how we learn. Paul's original readers would have understood that intuitively. And here, Paul is, as it were, raising the bar and saying, be imitators, not simply of someone in your life who you admire, but of God himself. Interestingly, this is the only time in all of the Bible when the notion of imitating God is specifically stated. I think the theology of it is everywhere. We ponder the reality of God and his character, and we seek to imitate him, to represent him well. But only here in Ephesians 5.1 does it specifically say, imitate God. And many fear, as Paul gives this command, that we are crossing a threshold that we ought not to cross. How can I strive to imitate God? Is that not sacrilegious in some way? And ironically, one scripture that comes very close to this one here is, of course, Genesis 3, when the serpent says to Eve, take of the fruit in order to be like God. It seems to sound very similar, but there's a key difference. When the serpent said to Eve, you will be like God, he was encouraging her to pursue knowledge independent of her creator. Break away from under his reign. Don't submit to him. Pursue an understanding of the world apart from him. Paul here is saying, imitate God as beloved children. Not independent of God, not apart from his good, gracious reign in your life. Submit to him, delight in his authority over you, and imitate him. How do we imitate God? Very simply, you have to spend time with him. Again, noting that it is the beginning of the year, I'm certain that many of you come here tonight with some kind of ambition that the year ahead would follow a reading plan. You would be in the Scriptures on a daily basis, and I commend that resolution. Don't give up when you miss a day. When you miss a week, don't give up. Just pick up your Bible again. All is not lost Strive, by God's grace, to be in this book continuously because that is how you spend time with God, in the Word and in prayer. Read this book and do so attentively, asking many questions, not least, what does this passage tell me about my God? Learn of His character. Don't grow complacent 
with profound truths that you already know. Do not grow complacent with profound truths concerning our great God that you already know. Ask God that he would make those truths fresh and alive to you every morning. Choose to marvel at God's love for you daily. Choose to be astounded at God's mercy and grace towards you through his Son, Jesus Christ. And with that, pray that your knowledge of him would increase. Turn back briefly with me to chapter 1 of this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. There's the wonderful eulogy. Then remember, at the end of that eulogy, Paul says, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you, and specifically, I'm going to pray that you would know these truths. What do you pray for someone who has everything? Answer, you pray that they would know how rich they are. Look at verse 17. Paul's prayer, as you know, as so many of you internalize, memorize, Paul's prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul wants you to understand, above all things, more of God Himself. And I cannot help but think that when Paul wrote this prayer, it was in part informed by his understanding of what he would go on to write in chapter 5. He knew that he would write, be imitators of God. And so he says, what I am praying for you is that you would know more of God. You can't imitate him if you don't know him. If your knowledge of God is superficial, you will be a bad imitator of God. Know God so as to imitate Him, which is to spend time with Him in His Word and pray that He would instruct your heart. And then you act. In this context, God has been shown as one who speaks the truth. So to be an imitator of God is to be one who is committed to speak the truth. As we were thinking through this morning, there is a self-examination and then there is a readiness to offer counsel and wisdom that is in accord with the Bible. You speak the truth in love. Sometimes you will say hard things. You say those hard things in love with the utmost humility and grace. Oftentimes, you should be encouraging one another. You see that which is good, and you see what God is doing in people's lives. Speak it. Encourage one another. It is the truth. So be a truth teller and say it to one another. Not only in this unit is God shown to be a God of truth, we see that he is a God of love. And so as an imitator of God, you are resolved to be a person characterized, marked by your love for others. 
It doesn't matter what happens to you, what your circumstances are. That doesn't change your resolution by God's grace to love people. And we see most immediately in verse 32 that God is a God who forgives. And so to be an imitator of him, you are resolved to forgiving others. Over and over and over. Your disposition is one of forgiveness. Now these characteristics of our great God, speaking the truth, loving, forgiving, are best exercised in our lives in so much as we are in community. The church father, Augustine, wrote extensively about how the imago dei, the image of God, is informed by the reality that our God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wrote extensively about how those two realities come together, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. That's our God. We are fashioned in His image. How does the reality of Trinity affect our understanding of how we ought to represent Him? And his writings have a lot to teach us as it relates to this text here. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, hovers very close to the truths of our being created in God's image. And here we are seeking to imitate Him. If He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally so, perfectly loving one another. It stands to reason that we best imitate God by placing ourselves in relationship with others. You can't be a good imitator of God if you're flying solo. If you're going it alone, if you're a lone ranger Christian, you can't survive like that. You will not get far in the Christian life if you try to go without the support of other Christians. And you cannot imitate God very well if you are not over and over placing yourself in relationship with other Christians. I want to encourage you to think through how you are seeking out those relationships. I hope not just on a Sunday. God's people will be here. Show up. You're in relationship. But think through the week. Think about how you're using the home that the Lord has blessed you with. Receive other believers in. Place yourself in relationship again and again. Because that's your opportunity to imitate God. Go to a home group. Go to someone else's house. Be there. Be present. Put other things to one side. Be in relationship because that is how you can best imitate God. When you understand the connection between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and our imitation of the triune God, it changes everything. Your mundane responsibilities are no longer mundane. 
your seemingly trivial tasks are no longer trivial. They are informed by an understanding that in pursuing every responsibility God has placed in front of you, you have the opportunity to imitate him, to put his character on display before a watching world, to allow other Christians to worship through your example. Not that they would ever worship you, but they would worship the God who you are imitating. Your approach to everyday life, to everything that God has given you as part of your lot in life, should be informed by this verse such that you cause others to say of you, I see in him the face of God. I see in her the face of God. Now it's important to say, we cannot imitate God if we are not Christians. It's important to say this. I don't want to take it for granted. You cannot imitate God unless you are a Christian. We see that because Paul says, therefore. It links us back to verse 32. In verse 32, Paul said, you've been forgiven. He's talking about the cross, the blood of Christ effective for you by God's grace. You've been forgiven. You're a Christian. On that basis, imitate God. He says also, as beloved children, the doctrine of adoption. Only Christians are children of God. You imitate God as a child of His. You are a Christian, and that's how you're able to imitate He also uses the verb to be. There are a number of different verbs he could have used. The specific verb he uses here, to be, could otherwise be translated become. Therefore, become imitators of God. And it brings into view the notion that you were once not an imitator of God. It's the same verb that we find in the Gospels when Jesus says to the fishermen, follow me and I will make you be, I will cause you to become fishers of men. It's the same choice of words. I do not think it is incidental. Jesus said to those fishermen, come with me and I will cause you to be something that presently you are not. Follow me and I will work in your heart such that you are radically transformed in who you are. Paul says, become imitators of God. It infers a radical transformation. A transformation that centers upon the cross of Christ. It is only when we have put our trust in Him for salvation that we could possibly imitate God. This morning, I encourage you towards self-examination as a discipline. And again, tonight, I would ask that you examine yourself and consider to what degree you are truly living your life so as to imitate God.
Are you loving, speaking the truth, forgiving, only to the degree that it is socially acceptable? Are you doing what you're doing because it is socially acceptable, but no more? It's actually relatively easy to imitate God when life is good. It's not difficult for me to love you when everything is going my way. It's not difficult for me to tell the truth when telling the truth is an acceptable practice. Examine yourself and ask the question whether you are imitating God because you are a child of God. Irrespective of the consequences, whether now or what may come, irrespective of how your life may play out, we are to imitate God as his beloved children. Second point, second verse, Paul goes on from there and says, and something of a new command, and walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, it is a new command, but it's not wholly distinct from the first verse. Again, to be an imitator of God is to love, because our God is love and he has loved us. So why does Paul state this command somewhat distinctly? Why does he give it as a separate verse? I think it is to show us something of the extent to which we are supposed to love. To be an imitator of God infers that we are to love. Then in verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us. He shows us something of the extent that we are to love one another. In that sense, it's not wholly dissimilar from when John writes in his first epistle, I give you a new and an old command. You know the text where John says, I give you a, an old command and a new command, and it seems like he's contradicting himself. He's really not. He's saying it's old in the sense that you know that you're meant to love one another and you've had that with you always in the law. It's new because Christ showed you just how far you're supposed to go in your love. Christ says you need to love like I loved you. To the cross. Unto death. That's the extent by which we are to love. And so we see in verse 2 the principles of our love. This is what our love looks like. It's continuous. Paul uses that verb to walk. It's a familiar metaphor now. We've seen it many times in this one letter. Paul talks about walking in Ephesians as a metaphor for living, for breathing, for getting up in the morning and for going to bed at night, for speaking to one another, for going about our work, for eating and drinking. Everything we do should be done in love. It is to be continuous. We don't get a day off. We don't get to decide today, I'm not 
going to love. I'm going to behave in a way that's contrary to the gospel. Our love is supposed to be continuous. It is also to be self-denying. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see how here Christ is set forth as our example. It's a worthy question to ask whenever you see Christ in the Scriptures, is he here being set forth as the substance of our faith or downstream as an example? Because he functions as both. We see Christ as the essence of our faith. We cannot be saved apart from faith in him. But once you have put your trust in Christ, many times over, he is then presented as an example to follow. Now, you don't get the two the wrong way around. He is never an example effectively to you until he has been the substance of your faith. Once you've placed your trust in him, then you follow him. Then you follow him. In verse 2, he is given to us as an example. Specifically, his whole earthly life. The very fact that he would condescend and, and be incarnate on earth amongst us. That he would take on human flesh and live amongst us. The very fact that we did not warrant, we did not deserve his presence with us. But he was willing at the Father's right hand to leave the throne of glory and come down, that he was willing to walk amongst us to be with sinners, to hold back his glory. He did not manifest fully his glory with us. We saw something of his glory, but the self-denial involved in his earthly ministry is profound. The facts that he was ridiculed and mocked. He did not retaliate. He didn't overrule. He didn't exercise his universal authority. But he allowed his persecutors to mock him, to ridicule him, to arrest him unfairly. He stood trial. He didn't accuse. He was scourged. He wore a crown of thorns. He was nailed to the cross, and there he died. And then we see his love. As we look at his example, we see how he loved us. And Paul says, you're to walk in that manner. And finally, our love is to be with a desire to honor God. How do we love like Christ? It is to be continuous, self-denying, and with a desire to honor God. Paul says of Christ's giving himself, of Christ's giving up of himself, he says it was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ's death on the cross was pleasing to his Father. It was an offering. 
a sacrifice. Paul draws on Old Testament terminology. In the Old Testament, you bring a sacrifice to God. He is pleased with your sacrifice. We read in Leviticus how you bring a sacrifice as a pleasing offering to God. We read throughout the Old Testament many examples of saints offering a fragrant aroma to the Lord. When Noah stepped out of the ark, he sacrificed and there was a fragrant offering that went up to God and he was pleased with it. And Paul said Christ's sacrifice on the cross was this to God. He sought to honor his his heavenly Father. Paul perhaps is drawing specifically here from a text that we find in Ezekiel. No need to turn there. I'll read it to you in Ezekiel chapter 20. We read this, On my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord, there all the house of Israel, all of them, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. And then Ezekiel says, as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. When I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out from the countries where you have been scattered, I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. Ezekiel is steeped in the theology of the temple. And the prophet looks forward to a day when God will save Israel. And God says, on that day, you, Israel, by your conduct, by your holiness, will be unto me a pleasing aroma. Christ went ahead of them and was a pleasing aroma to God through all of his earthly life and on the cross. And Paul says, you are to be that now. Now consider the context in which he writes these words. All the way back in Acts 19, we see the context for this letter. It is one where the church in Ephesus is feeling the pressure from the Artemis cult. Hundreds, if not thousands, of worshippers going to the temple of the goddess Artemis every day. And they don't like that there are people turning away from that, coming to the church. And there's a, a riot that comes about. Because those that fashion the trinkets around the temple are now losing their business. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, and this letter is full of temple theology. And he says, this is the real temple. The body of Christ, not the Artemis temple. Don't worry about them. You are where God is doing his work. And you are to be a pleasing aroma. So think through the manner in which you love. How continuous is it? How much do you deny yourself 
in order to love others? How much do you love in order to honor God, willing to sacrifice your very life so that God would be pleased with your conduct? Again, these two verses are not to be taken in an arbitrary, abstract manner. They sit at the beginning of this new unit as a banner over everything else Paul is going to say. In this church, we have seen many new members over the last year. I'm grateful for the frequent comments I receive from visitors as to just how friendly this church is, how warmly they were welcomed. Paul would say, keep going. Keep loving continuously. Don't take a day off. When it hurts, deny yourself. And do it knowing that God is pleased with your love. Paul will go on to speak about the responsibility of wives and husbands living together in marriage over many, many, many years the relationship that perhaps we can most quickly take for granted. Paul would say, love continuously. Don't take a day off. Deny yourself. And do it knowing that God is honored as you love your spouse. Paul will speak directly to children. So difficult, it would seem, to come under continuously, joyfully, the authority of your parents. Paul would say you need to love them. Love them continuously. Deny yourself. And know that God is pleased as you do so. Paul will speak about the relationship between bondservants and masters, employees and employers. He teaches us how the gospel informs our workplace. He says to us, love continuously. Deny yourself and know that God is honored. And in all of it, understand just how much of a privilege it is for us to make God known in our love. We are here tonight as imitators of God. We have the privilege of loving like Christ loved us. And in so doing, we encourage one another and we put God's glory on display to a watching world. May he work these truths out in our hearts. Would you pray with me now to close? Father, we give you thanks for these two verses in your word. We give you thanks for the commands that you give to us. They are good and right and true. Help us to obey. Impress upon us the unique opportunity that we have as beloved children to imitate you. May we be those who imitate you. 
speaking the truth, loving others, forgiving. Impress upon us the opportunity that is ours to love like Christ loved us. Continuously denying ourselves so as to honor you as a fragrant offering. Father, we commit ourselves to you tonight and ask that you would have your way with us in accordance with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.